Welcome to another edition of Turn Out of Punk. I'm your host, Damien Abraham, and once again, I am bringing you a conversation with someone who grew up listening to punk, may or may not still be involved in punk, but had their life changed by the genre in a major way. And on the show today, Johnny Marr. Yes, that's right, from the Smiths, the the, the Cribs, Modest Mouse, and of course, for the purposes of this show, Sister Ray. But more on that in one second. First of all, I just want to say thank you for checking out the show. If you want to get in touch with me, you can find me on social media at Damien. We have an email address, turn out a punk podcast at gmail.com. And ta-da! Starting this week, a brand new Patreon. People have been asking me to do a Patreon for a while. It finally came to a point where we were starting to lose some episodes in the feed, and I realized that we had to do something with footnotes. So Seemed like a, a pretty good solution. If you would like to join the Turned Out of Punk Patreon, you can head over to patreon.com slash turnedoutofpunk. There you will find a bunch of tiers, including a tier which gives you access to all the footnotes, archives, current episodes of footnotes that we keep putting up and keep putting out there each and every week. And yeah, I'm loading it up. Right now I'm on a family vacation, so it's kind of a poor time to watch that Patreon, but I assure you, I want to make sure I keep loading that up with content. Uh, there will also be a monthly live DJ radio show thing I'm going to do. And I'm pretty sure I'm going to put that on video so you can watch me uh, change records over from side to side and whatnot. Uh, also, um, there are some merch stuff there. So if, if you have enough to you know uh, support the show to the tune of a certain amount, we will be sending you shirts, records, minifigs, we. I'll be sending you shirts, uh, a Lego mini, a Lego style, Lego style. Don't worry. No copyright infringement there. Lego style minifig, a Punisher's Punisher minifig is what I've decided to call it. Um, A bunch of other stuff. Anyway, just go out to that Patreon, check it out and see all the great stuff that is going on over there. And I'm just going to keep building this thing. It's going to be a nice, you know, a, a nice little project for me to have kind of in the background working on this Patreon. And I've got some big goals, big goals to kind of improve this podcast. Uh, so, yeah, thank you for checking that out. Support this podcast by subscribing to it, telling all your friends. And this show would not be possible without the kind support of the fine folks at Vans. Vans came on board a couple of years ago and said, you know what, just do your show. Book whoever you want to book. We just want to support you doing that. And that's what they have done. And that's what I have continued to do. And my gosh, is it fun. Speaking of fun, this week on the show, whew, Johnny Marr. First of all, i got to give a huge thank you to Shane and, of course, Tristan Abraham, my brother, show producer. Thanks, Tris, uh, for making this happen. Johnny Marr is someone that, like every person, pretty much, I've been a fan of at least one of the projects that he's played in. And most recently, I discovered that he played in the band Sister Ray, a band that I've loved for a while, just from hearing the one song, of course, but I've been a big fan for a long time, so, oh my gosh, did this feel like a perfect fit. I'm not going to ramble on anymore. Check out the drawing my dad did of Johnny Marr. We're going to be doing some more cool drawings, or he's going to be doing some more cool drawings of some upcoming guests in the near future, some character portrait type things, and uh, that's it. I'm just going to let you listen to this. It's not a super long episode, but I assure you, it is jam-packed, and you have never heard a Johnny Marr interview like this. I... I can assure you of that. That's it. Sit back, relax, and enjoy Johnny Marr on Turned Out a Punk. 
Johnny, thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, glad to be here. Thank you. Uh, thanks for inviting me. Well, as I was just telling you off air, I am a huge fan and get ready for a lot of nerdy, nerdy questions. Oh, good. Yeah, I like nerdy. That's okay. <laughs> okay, Sorry. excellent. Well, I want to start this off the way I start them all off, which is, Johnny, how'd you get into punk? Do you remember the first time you ever came across the genre? Yeah, uh, well, there's a very legendary um, uh, tale with British um, British musicians, particularly musicians from Manchester, about when the Sex Pistols played at the Lesser Free Trade Hall in 1976. Mm -hmm. And um, there were two gigs, I think, within a few weeks of each other. And famously, you know, there was like 40 people, uh, 25 people at the first one and maybe 40 people at the second one. There's actually been a book uh about that called i swear i was there because you know over the years <laughs> you know it, those numbers have swelled to, to two thousand people but famously um you know the buzzcocks uh had arranged this show and uh, and they played and sex pistols uh played as one of their very early shows now i didn't go to that show because i was too young i was like uh seven i was 12 but um a bunch of my friends went um and uh, one one of my uh, one of my friends at the time was Billy Duffy, who's now in the cult. And mm -hmm. he, he grew up in my neighbourhood. Anyway, my my introduction to that to to, to answer your question was the next day. Um, Billy and another one of my friends who'd gone were completely different. They, they it was it was genuinely year zero. And if you were paying attention and you were interested enough, which I very much was, uh, even as a twelve year old. Um, uh, you knew that within 24 hours, everything had changed, certainly Manchester. And that gig has, has gone on to be cited by, you know, the, the people who were there. Morrissey was there and uh, Ian Curtis from Joy Division. And that, um, Marky Smith was there, right? I yeah, think as well. Yeah, a bunch of people, Buzzcocks. And those, yeah, so that's that, that famous gig. So that was my introduction to, to punk. But then, I mean, within a, Within what seemed like days afterwards, I don't know, it'd be a matter of weeks probably, the the, um, the Buzzcocks released their, their uh, self-financed Spiral Scratch EP, um, and that was the first artifact, first punk rock artifact I saw. And interestingly enough, you know, I noticed that the drummer had the same name, he's called John Marr, um, uh, and... And then shortly thereafter, I mean, very shortly after, this was all within a space of weeks, I went to my first ever gig. So I saw, you know, I was a little, I was a child. Um, 12 years old, holy. Yeah, and that first ever gig was was a band called Slaughter and the Dogs, who also oh. played on that, that bill. So that was my first ever show with Slaughter and the Dogs, and I was, and I was 12 and I went on my own. And um, <laughs> it was it was pretty uh, exhilarating and um, eye-opening event for me so that all that sort of sequence of events all happened in the summer of 1976 and you know it's a it's a commonly used phrase but yeah that it was at the time it seemed like year zero i had, I had different thoughts about it as, as i got older um but um yeah that's that's how i started that slaughtering the dog show was my first show it was amazing well, going back even before that first, uh, you know, famous Sex Pistols show in Manchester, like you mentioned being friends with Billy Duffy at that point, what kind of music were you guys into 
like prior to punk, were you guys into like, uh, you know, like, was it like kind of the, the faster stuff like Dr. Feelgood or was it other pub rock yeah. stuff? Well, Dr. Feelgood would definitely have credibility. Um, like a lot of people of that time, um, raw power, uh, well, the Stooges, mm -hmm. um, was, was really the, the high watermark and the dolls. Um, the, the neighborhood that I grew up in was, uh, a lot of there was a lot of kids. It was the uh, the largest housing estate or projects, if you like, in Europe at the time. It still might be this area. So, which meant there was a ton of kids there, and um, uh, and it being the seventies, um, quite a lot of boys particularly wanted to play the guitar. So there was a lot of guitar players around. And looking back on it, um, you know, it was pretty. It was a pretty fertile and pretty cool working class kind of um, environment to grow up in in that regard because, you know, all these young kids, mostly boys, did the whole, um, you know, classic rock thing. So, so a couple of my pals were really into The Who. Billy was into The Who. Um, and, you know, because this was before punk broke, if you were a guitar freak, you had to kind of choose people like, you know, Mick Ronson was a very, very important um, influence on a lot of the British punk uh guitar players in waiting and um uh but then there was people like uh chris bedding who played with roxy music and um mark boland was important but and then there was a whole there was all those you know rock guys who were into the deep purples and led zeppelins and and all of that um i got very lucky because i fell in with a bunch of uh pretty hip older guys and um they, you know, they sort of educated me about really the, the American scene. So, so, you know, as regards punk, that was really all about the dolls and the stooges. Uh, I remember hearing about the flaming groovies, but in the UK, Dr. Feelgood were kind of, uh, yeah, they were the kind of, uh, noisy rocking. Wilco Johnson was a, was a, a favorite of everybody's. So, oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So that was, yeah, that was kind of the scene really. And like, where were you guys finding out about this music? You mentioned hanging out with these older kids, but like, was it from the music weeklies or were you kind of like going to record stores at that point? Well, both really, but it was very much about the, the music weeklies. Yeah. Uh, you know, to this day, I remember some really important articles when punk broke, for example, reading, uh, I read a David Johansson interview and I read, um, I read, uh, there was a Patty Smith interview um and the articles charles Murray, nick kent uh particularly john savage uh his stuff uh and it it broke really really quick i mean it, it was a absolute deluge uh from as soon as the pistols appeared um it was just like a wildfire really Mm -hmm. I mean, there was still, as the evidence is there, if you look through those old, re really those old music papers in the UK, it's probably the same in the United States, but really right the way through 77, 78, 79, there are still the remnants of the rock scene. And, you know, um, it, you know, whether that's Fleetwood Mac or, you know, Blue Oyster Cult or whatever, they were still really big groups. Um, it isn't true that, you know, the the earth was wiped clean of dinosaurs, and uh, and everyone started again. But um, also, if you you know, if you were to look back, you would see that there were just articles about new groups popping up, 
every few minutes. The big, the big, you know, the bands that everyone remembers really, aside from the Pistols, were like the Damned and the Stranglers and um, uh, and the Clash, of course, and and all of that. But really, in their wake, there was just new bands cropping up every week, and it was absolutely exhilarating because um, I don't. For me, I'd already started kind of getting pretty good on the guitar or good enough uh to be able to do that you know in in the in the case of some of my friends uh seeing the punk bands that inspired them to pick up an instrument you know whatever it was uh but in my case i'd already picked up the guitar so i you know i was it, it genuinely was oh i could do that because I'm, I'm already kind of doing it um, well you were a kid too right like because you're playing in your first band at the age of 13 and you're yeah you're oh, on yeah. stage I mean, with my- sister ray at 14 years old yeah, Sister Ray were like a really gnarly kind of biker band. They're um, incredible. That song, I've only heard the one song, Suicide, but that's got to be top 25 UK punk songs for me ever. Oh, you know what? Not. <laughs> I don't know whether I've ever spoken to anyone else in the media or done an interview with anyone who's heard it, to be honest. Oh, uh, it's, it's on that one comp, the identity comp that TGM put out. And, yeah. Oh, my God, that song to me. And it's you're right. It's just like... And it looks like one of the members of the band has dreadlocks even back then, but they are just so primitive sounding. Like it's, it's just so ahead of its time. Yeah. Well, that's why I joined the band. I mean, I was aware that it was a somewhat of a freak show because these, this <laughs> band, I was thinking even I had, you know, for all my kind of, um, you know, I was excited about it. Uh, I was thinking, Jesus, you know, what, what, what are you doing with a 14 year old in your band? I mean, I looked, I looked all <laughs> I looked 15 and a half, yeah. but, but, um, it, I, I, and it was a big ask for me being in that band because they were adults and they were strangers. I'd never met them before. And they were, they were as genuinely as scary as they sounded. Mm-hmm. And, um, and the, the rehearsal space was in the, the, the guy with dreadlocks was the drummer, Bill Anstein. He had a, um, we used to practice in his, his basement and, uh, it was that was in the red light area of of Manchester, and um, I never had any money. And yeah, I was for a fourteen year old. It was a, a pretty intrepid uh, episode, but uh, I, I wanted to. I wanted my playing to. Uh, I, I wanted to learn how to play with that kind of primitive kind of sounded like a cross between stooges and hawkwind really oh absolutely yeah like but it's also like the vocals are just like almost like rocky erickson but like way more raw sounding like just like screaming it sounds like at times absolutely i mean the whole set sounded like that it was it was insane so i played my first real show with 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 that band yeah i was 14 uh and that's really where i consider my career starting so now as a you know an adult been around for a long time i I look back now and go, well, yeah, I started being a professional musician when I joined that band and I, I was in a band with, with adults, you know? So yeah. I, that was my, that was the start of my apprenticeship really sister. Right. <laughs> well, and no wonder, cause you know, excuse me for saying, but you've played in some bands with some of the most wild, gnarly people throughout history of humanity. But I guess at 14, if you're playing with a bunch of biker punks, it kind of sets the stage that you're ready for anything. Yeah. I learned, yeah, 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 yeah. I learned well. The, f- the first thing, um, the, f- the first thing that happened when I, I joined that band was Clive, the singer. It, uh, it was really, really out there. Uh, he he uh, he he gave me amphetamine. Said, right, yeah, you're going to be need if you're in this band, you, you're go- you're going to be needing this. I was like, I've already got some. <laughs> 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 yeah. Uh, 
how did you like, how did you find up in that situation? Like, had they heard of uh, White Dice yeah. in your first band, right? Yeah, well, I was actually at that time. No, I was in, um, I was in my own little band called, was Paris Valentino's? Oh, no, I think I was in White Dice. That's right. Yeah. And um, I, I, I was sort of, you know, as I say, the neighborhood. <laughs> people were really taking themselves quite seriously in that neighborhood, which was great. You know, it was a very working class, as I say, um, environment and tough. Uh, but everyone was kind of walking the walk. You see a lot of people walking around with guitar cases. As I said, the, the Kings of the Hill were slaughtering the dogs. They were like the local heroes. Yeah. And, and, um, uh, and someone connected to me. I don't know who it would have been. Uh, just, when their guitar player left just said well you know you want to check this kid out so uh, i i went to meet them uh, on a, a saturday afternoon the other three members and they just asked me flat out to join my parents were not happy about it at all but <laughs> i could imagine <laughs> but i just ignored them so it's all right had had like uh I guess like once again, like you're saying, Slaughter and the Dogs are kind of the kings of the hill, and it really you can hear that in the sound of that band too, of Sister Ray. Yeah, yeah, it was very working class, very Manchester, and uh, yeah, it's, it, it's. I mean, I look back on it now, and I think Jesus, you know, I made and, and that first show, uh, you know, I had to check really when I wrote my autobiography a few years ago, and I was I was thinking, okay, well, it was very very important that first show that yeah. you went to, and I had to check the date again. I had to keep couple of times like really well that, that makes me 12 yeah and, then, and when i wrote that chapter and i saw my parents i said you know you know i went to that show on my own and like yeah 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 it's like you know i i had to walk back from that show i didn't get until about 1 30 i said you know how old i was i was 12 <laughs> they, they, they didn't bat an eyelid they still don't <laughs> I can't, well look you know that the, the I, you know i was an irish very Irish thing, really. Where I think my parents just wanted me. They they know I was pretty streetwise, and I was. Um, they, they they they. I think my, my dad says, "Well, you know, you, we 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 knew you knew what you were doing." Uh, <laughs> but I did. I didn't actually. <laughs> well, also like you're saying, it's not like you know that that part of Manchester at the time, especially, sounded like it would be pretty rough. It was pretty rough when I started going to Manchester like 20 years ago. So I can only imagine what it was like before that. Yeah, it was very violent. Yeah, uh, it, it, that was yeah, it was very violent. That was all part of it. South Manchester, particularly that area, um, was was pretty pretty heavy. Um, I mean, I'd moved from from the inner city uh, in 1972, 73. Uh, yeah, 73. Uh, and when I first moved to the south, I. You know, it, was, it seemed very bohemian to me, and um, uh, you know, it, it was like a, a, a amazing new part of my life. Before that, the place really, what I'm saying is, the place that I, I moved from, Ardwick, was was even edgier, really. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so uh, you know, Woody Shaw's got still got a bit of a reputation. I don't really live too far from it, really. It's pretty pretty kind of soulful. Uh, it's an interesting place yeah so uh as i say i look back now and you know as, as i've said the it's kind of amazes me how many how many 
people were walking around with guitar cases and basses and all of that. I think that was a lot to do with the times as well, I think. Yeah, well, in, in the sounds of, you know, Manchester, like, you know, even just your peer group would change the world, right? Like, it's amazing how many people would kind of come out of, you know, a fairly disparate situation and wind up producing art that would have impact and resonance for, for generations. Well, you know, uh, that's right. You, um, you absolutely cannot underestimate the, uh, the impact of Buzzcocks. Um, you know, if you, if you listen to it, um, boredom, uh, is probably in some ways as a sound, it's it, 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 it struck me as being more radical when, when, when Nevermind the Bollocks came out, uh, and you know, I mean, it's a, obviously, you know, what, what more can you say about Nevermind the Bollocks? But actually, as, <laughs> as a listen, uh, uh, the, the buzzco- what the Buzzcocks were doing was, and the title Spiral Scratch, and the kind of the, the way Pete Shelley, who eventually became the frontman, uh, the way he set himself up as in a kind of fey, femin- feminine, slightly queer uh, position was in some ways more radical a sound than the pistols i think mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um you know it it definitely felt newer whereas the pistols eventually when they got their record out it sounded muscular and you could hear a lot of the dolls in there and you could hear bits of you know you could hear quite a quite a fair bit of rock and roll what was going on in quite a number of the provinces but particularly in manchester um uh, was inspired by the pistols and the movement from the king's road but it then took on its own almost mm, maybe more intellectual and certainly slightly more uh i'd say had a more of a kind of sexual kind of politic about it so magazine were uh, were very important and it, it's it's to do really with the sort of um, Manchester had a, had a, a kind of um, a, a sense of unfinished business from the late sixties and early seventies. There was quite a few. There were quite a few radicals left up here. Who the interesting thing about punk, I think overall across the board, is that um, it, it became an amazing vehicle for a bunch of people, mostly men um figures who were kind of radicals in the late 60s and never never made it so for <laughs> example well you see the dynamic between the obvious thing even though it's london right malcolm mclaren yeah. and uh, and and the pistols and feeding them situationism and all of that so it, it's something that isn't really discussed very much when punks talked about other than in other than in John Savage's amazing and definitive book, uh, England's Dreaming, he, he talks about it in that. Uh, but I was aware of it at the time because Tosh Ryan, um, Martin Hanna, famously Tony Wilson, mm-hmm. Rob Gretton, Richard Boone. So Richard Boone went on to manage the Buzzcocks. Alan Wise was uh, a sort of intellectual who, at that time in the late, 70s these all these people seemed ancient even though they were probably they were probably just late 20s yeah um, but they so tony setting up factory records rob gretton went started managing joy division and new order uh martin hannah uh of course 
producing magazine and Buzzcocks and uh, and Joy Division. Uh, there's a whole a whole list of people who were bohemians and who had kind of um, were sort of almost. I don't know whether they were waiting for their moment, but their moment came with punk and they informed. So they started, you know, factory records and there was rabid records, which you'll know about that the crate I, label out, out and like, Oh, the, well, the slaughter and the dog stuff, obviously great. And label. The, no, uh, the nosebleeds on oh, it. Oh, yes. Yeah. And, um, so, you know, man, cause, because, uh, you know, the same could be said of some of the uh, of the other, you know, Liverpool, obviously, you know, had Bill Drummond and so on. But that was more of a post-punk thing. But Manchester had a real uh, 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 legacy and history of, of bohemian intellectuals and radicals uh, and who were, there was a Manchester Musicians Collective, for instance, in 74, 75, 76. <laughs> so there was a sort of... Um, uh, there was a what's the word? There was a sort of network waiting to find its purpose in a way. Linda Sterling was was important to it as well. Linda from Ludus, who you know she did the famously did the those incredible Buzzcocks uh, record covers. Mm-hmm. Um, Malcolm Garrett, just a whole lot. So without those people, there was a sensibility there of of experimentation and um, and uh, and as I say, sort of radicalism that. W- w- that really uh an infrastructure already waiting to happen i think yeah it's funny because like obviously that you know revolution you're talking about when punk hits hits all over the whole uk but like there's certain cities where it really takes hold and, and manchester is definitely one of them where just yeah and the way people took the sound where it wasn't even about punk anymore but it just almost like gave people a green light to do their own thing well the, as i say if you magazine um, were not a three chord thrash band. They, mm-hmm. there's, def- there's definitely a, uh, an artistic agenda going on there. You, those records still sound incredible to me, and um, I was really taken by them uh, at the time. As I said, you know, Buscox, the the, um, the rhetoric that was uh, going around and really caught fire of the disaffected unemployment. Um, you know the the uh, the whole pretty vacant rhetoric. People in the provinces actually took really took that to heart because, um, and so this is separate from the people I was I've been talking about. This is people in the audience, kids. Um, they that whole no future um, message. They really took that to heart in Manchester. Uh, there's f- there's quite famous footage which you often see of a bunch of people queuing outside the electric circus and they've got the pins in the nose and they've got the the, the, the dog collar on and stuff and there's a young kid he's about 16 and he's they're asking him why he likes punk and he says well look at me i'm nothing look at me i'm nothing and it really kind of suits his accent you know the the kids who were reading about it say secondhand in the music press were seeing some of the sloganeering particularly of bands like the clash um who were saying you know there is no future and uh you know um burning on the streets and throw bricks and bottles and that that kind of that rhetoric uh 
as I say, they, they, they took it to heart and then they in turn ran with it themselves and really. That's how, that's how I remember it. But the first, uh, I've got to say though, the first punks, uh, there's something that I was glad to mention in my book. It was only one little paragraph, but it, it, you know, it's quite, um, it was quite pleasing for me to, to, to be able to talk about it because I'd never seen any, anything said about it before. Uh, elsewhere was that um around the time of that slot the dogs gig that i went to um the the, the punks the uh, the first sort of wave of punks uh they didn't they didn't wear leather jackets they didn't wear studded wristbands they didn't wear studded belts that came with the ramones when the ramones went and played at the roundhouse um it might have been Dingwalls, maybe. But anyway, when they played in camden um shortly thereafter but before that the punks who I saw were, were very shocking looking because they were very effeminate. And by that, I don't mean they, they kind of had, you know, big scarves on or lots of makeup. They, they were just little, very small, little thug, little thugs. And the whole leather jacket, Sid Vicious thing didn't happen really for eight or nine months later. They were all essentially the, the guys, they looked like rent boys. They looked like, male prostitutes the ones that i saw and they were very scary so very befitting of the origins of the name punk i guess at that point absolutely yeah yeah they look like like when you see you know pictures from hollywood and vine in 1967 68 and um some some areas of new york some of those old old photographs a little jump freezing cold it being manchester uh you know, little V-neck sweaters with no shirts under and super tight little jeans, which was a real statement at the time. And um, little moccasins or plastic, little plastic sandals, which came from David Bowie. Um, really, no, you know, no Ziggy Stardust three years before, no punk rock, because you've only got to really listen to the sound of Suffragette City and the singing. Uh, and... Um, that really there is the blueprint of British punk and every, every punk musician, particularly people like Marco Pieroni from Adam, Adam and the Ants and um, uh, the guys from Susie and the Banshees, Steve Severin, those people were really at the forefront of it when it was in London before it spread to the other cities. They were all Bowie freaks. Mm. Uh, and, you know, uh, that's where the, the colored hair came from, the green hair and the, and the earrings and, um, you know, the, and the, the piercings and all of that, that came from really what the legacy of David Bowie with Ziggy Stardust and a little bit of a hangover from young Americans. It's amazing when you think about how defining Sid Vicious is ultimately for the legacy of what people view as punk. Cause you're right. Like it didn't sound like it's been kind of taken up in history. It didn't look like it's been taken up in history. It was something very different at its inception. Well, ironically, the, what I've just described before he got the leather jacket Sid Vicious looked like a tall version of what I've just described <laughs> if you see photographs of him before yeah. he joined the before he joined the pistols he really had that kind of you know he had that kind of effeminate Bowie thing going on that black and uh, white mohair sweater photo where he's got the black sunglasses on that's kind of famous footage of him I've yeah heard. and there's, there's 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 photographs of him in a red like red uh, sort of rockabilly jacket like it's kind of like a tuxedo and <laughs> Um, but yeah, Bowie's influence can't be really, really can't, can't be possibly overstated. The, the Space Oddity album, the photograph on the back where he's got the spiky hair and he's, uh, he's sat kind of sideways on a chair. That was like a real go-to 
for 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 the punks really you know and that was what maybe two or three years beforehand so visually and um and and the sexual politics as well uh were as i say you listen to suffragette city is you know it's every punk punk rock record british punk rock record three years before before it's time you know Absolutely. Well, I, I also before, you know, I, I have to let you go because honestly, I could talk to you forever about this stuff, but I want to kind of go back to that first White Dice kind of era. What did that band sound like? What, what, what were the kind of your sonic reference points? I know you did Thin Lizzy and Rolling Stones covers of that first gig, but what were Yeah, yeah well, well, okay. So there's two different bands going on. I think the White Dice was a band that was actually, it was run by, it was led by a guy called Rob Allman, who was a very talented um, very, very talented musician for his age. He, he would have been 15, 16, and he was, he was a really capable songwriter. And his house was somewhat of a salon for all the stuff I was talking to you about. So that's how I got to know Billy Duffy, because he was Billy Duffy and him were, were best pals. And so Rob, he was literally, if you went to Robert Ullman's house, which I did pretty much every evening after school, he, when he would open the door, he would have a guitar on and he would be in the middle of working out a Neil Young song or writing a, a sort of Elvis Costello knockoff mm-hmm. or whatever. Now, Billy, uh, he went uh, to the Pistols gig and, and I think when it got violent, he split. He, Rob didn't really have the stomach for punk. So that band, The White Dice, this you know depended on where rob was at we had to just fall in so it was a good apprenticeship for me because he was such a good musician if he decided that okay now we're going to play like xtc then and do a couple of their songs i had to learn to play like yeah, that. Adapt. But, <laughs> yeah yeah but he he would write a load of his own songs now what happened was he he and i often didn't get along um because i was quite willful and i saw i didn't really see myself being just anyone's you know just just his guitar player i said you know the habits die hard you know so um he i was always i was in and out of that band and i kind of staged a little bit of a protest and formed my own band which was called paris valentino's and that's, I think, more the band that you're probably talking about because we did. That was the band that did um, "Do Anything You Want to Do" by the Hot Rods. We did, and we did "American Girl" by Tom Petty when that came out. So I guess when was that? Seventy-eight or something? Maybe seventy-seven. We did um, "Ask the Angels" by Patti Smith. But then I was writing my own songs then, and actually, a, a couple of my bits and pieces ended up in the first lot of Smith stuff. So the song Handsome Devil by the Smiths, that was, um, that was the Paris Valentino's riff. Mm-hmm. And, um, these things take time was, was adapted from a Paris Valentino song. So the faster early Smith songs, we sort of sounded like that, but with me singing, I mean, not really a million miles away from some of the fast songs that I do in my solo set now, really. So did, we were kind of new, new wavy, you know, did that band have the audition with F beat or was that the white dice? That was the white dice. And that was kind of like, that was, that was, we were kind of like a power pop band. Both those bands were like power pop. The, the most punky thing, Sister Ray, as we've discussed, was all out. Yeah. All out, really uh, full on punk. Uh, uh, but then both white dice, uh, that was a, like a more of a sophisticated power pop band with Rob singing and I was singing backup vocals and playing lead guitar. And then Paris Valentino's was my band where with me singing and 
you know, I was such a big fan of the only ones, Peter Parrott and the only oh, ones. What he's been, he was a guest on the show, and it's one of my favorite episodes I've ever gotten to do. Oh, I'm gonna say, I've just, yeah, I've just been texting with Peter before we started. Oh, speaking. tell my yeah. say hello. It was, I love, like, I, I, I learned about his first band, England's Glory, like, and I, I fell in love with that band too. Like, what a genius! One of the greatest songwriters ever. What? Well, yeah. Well, they were. You know, it's not really exaggerating or getting too romantic or flowery if I say that Peter Perrett was was my Sid Barrett, really. Oh, that's awesome! That that makes complete yeah. sense. Yeah, and I, they were the band that I used to I followed. You know, I, I used to get on a coach and get on trains and hitchhike to see the only ones. That's they so were, awesome. Yeah, they were huge. They were a really big influence on me. They were like kind of my my real love you know um seriously imagine i they were like my band and uh, you know everyone knew like oh yeah John, you know johnny's a only one's freak he's johnny's you know because it was all very tribal you know what i mean yeah, yeah. And, I, and sometimes i i got some of those shows and oh i was i was always at the front and they were great they were really tight but i you know, Peter used to, I, I'd be right under him and, you know, he'd be sweating on me and I'd be then in these little universities. And sometimes, you know, I mean, the, the, a couple of shows I went to, there must have only been about 60 people, but, you know, that was out in the sticks. But uh, really, really up close, I've seen him, I must have seen him 14, 15 times, you know. Oh, that's so, amazing. I, he was supposed oh, yeah. to come here and I was supposed to go and see the show, but he they had to cancel the North American tour and it was just, I was gutted. Uh, right. So... The, that was what I was trying to do in Paris, Paris Valentino's. But, you know, I was so young still. I was like still, at that time, I was only 15, maybe yes. 16. I, you know, I, I think um, learning, uh, playing playing those kind of songs really, you know, influenced me as a songwriter, I think, you know. Uh, absolutely. Well, it's it's funny because, like, have did you record any of that Paris Valentino stuff? No, I just recorded it on uh, somewhere. I've got a couple of cassettes of that band somewhere, you know. Somewhere. Oh, I'd love to hear it. But it's just, it's yeah. amazing how good you are at such a young age, right? Like it's, it's like a virtuoso. Was there like a history of playing in your family? Yeah. Yeah. All my extended family were all, uh, and still are like Irish, uh, musicians. Well, they're, they're definitely still Irish, but <laughs> there might be, uh, uh, and they, they still play the ones that are, that are around, but yeah, as, as a child, um, uh, See, that was the thing, really. I was uh, punk uh, really happened at a good time for me because I was already playing. I started playing around about eight or nine, and uh, I, you know, I was obsessed with the guitar. And so, uh, be before punk, anything to do with the guitar, I was I was on board with. I watched all these really cheesy television shows with comedians on and you know uh, this uh light entertainment stuff and because that's where the only place you would see groups really other than the famous top of the pops that all musicians back british musicians bang on about and but aside from top of the pops there would always be some band on on the lulu show or on like whatever some comedian show or whatever much like in the united states but on a smaller scale so i would just be glued and hope that it wasn't some kind of corny torch singer and that it would be a <laughs> so, some band you know and it'd be yeah yeah sometimes it would be marmalade or sometimes it would be you know amen corner or one of those sort of early 70s kind of groups so i, I was al already on board and then 
but then once you know, my I got re- my first real love was T Rex, and and I got I was just completely obsessed with Mark Bolan, and so I just everything he did I was into, and then uh, just rolling and rolling and rolling with it. Uh, but essentially, as I said, by the time punk as young as i was by the time punk hit literally hit the streets and punks hit the street of manchester which brings us back to the beginning of our conversation i was kind of pretty streetwise and pretty ready for it and i was let off the leash as well by my parents they you know they were so into music you know all i had to do was say i was going to a concert they never asked me where I, whether i had a ticket or not or question which i ne- very rarely did if ever they never questioned how I was going to get in and out of the city centre. Uh, they never questioned, you know, they anything else they would have been on my on my ass about. Yeah. But, but as long as I was going to a concert, because uh, my parents to this day go out more than anyone I know. That's awesome. <laughs> they go and see all these songwriters and country singers, and so I had. Uh, I really had a lot of encouragement in go to see bands. So all of this activity we've been talking about that happened in my hometown um, around youngsters, uh, you know, was uh, mostly it was for older kids, but because I hung out with older kids, I, I did okay. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, before I let you go, Johnny, I do want to know, was that FBeat audition, was it for Elvis Costello or was it just for like uh, Andrew uh, Lauder or who was it for? It was for Jake Riviera and Andrew Lauder. Oh, awesome. Um, yeah, and uh, that was a real, uh, you know, that was a real big moment for me. Obviously, that was, you know, anyone might imagine, even for any kid going into a recording studio, particularly in the 70s, um, it was such a whirlwind. I almost, I've got a very good memory, um, which, you know, came in really handy when I was writing my book. But that weekend when i went in the studio is almost a blur it was so overwhelming and it was in nick lowe's uh home studio oh was he uh, there you got to meet him he he turned up uh, well he turned up the day we, we we arrived in the morning and he came off uh, a rock pile tour this so this would have been 78 maybe 79 i think he came off a rock pile tour uh he'd been on the road for weeks and so i someone said oh this was in in his house, you know. Yeah. So someone said that, oh, you know, Nick's coming back today. And anyway, so then he, he turned up, and I just remember these seeing these cowboy boots going up the stairs, very, very in a very unsteady fashion, <laughs> and then hearing this almighty crash, which I, to this, I don't know whether it was his suitcases or whether it was him actually falling down and missing the bed. <laughs> yeah, but. So that I, I, I saw him at, uh, I saw him from the knees down, but I've, I've, to, I've told him that story and he really enjoyed it. Uh, but I got to play Elvis Costello's Rickenbacker and, and, you know, I mean, I guess, yeah, I would have been, what, 14, 14 15, maybe, 15 maybe. And, That's unbelievable, um, yeah. Yeah, I was really put on the spot. That was the thing. We, we cut three songs and then I'd never overdubbed before. And the, the guy who was producing it, who was called Paul Bass, he was the engineer on a, quite a lot of the stiff records. He was to me, all right, well, we need some top line stuff now. And it was my first opportunity to, to do a proper overdub. And, um, and then off I went. And I remember just kind of getting it together and it went very well. And then they got me to overdub, the band got me to overdub on all the songs then. And then you, could, you really couldn't stop me. And, um, you know, that... Uh, you know, again, uh, when when I, I look back on that, 
from this vantage point now, I think, wow, that was a really uh, kind of, um, a, a, it was a real sort of founding uh, uh, point in my, if that's, a, if that's the word, like an important part of my education really and gave me some sort of foundations that weekend. Absolutely. Whatever happened to that session? You know, it's around. It's, it's, uh, I don't know whether it's on the internet or not, but I know a couple of my friends had it over the years. They had copies of the cassette. It kind of sounds like, um, I don't know, in some ways, it's, I want to say it sounds like maybe a little bit it sounds like XTC, if I'm being uh, generous. It, one song I remember sounding a bit like Joe Jackson to me, which, you know, I was was okay. <laughs> <laughs> you know say no uh, more right. i get what you're saying i i still want to hear that thing did you guys cut it as an acetate or just a cassette tape yeah we just cut it as a cassette tape somewhere stiff records have got a half inch of of the white dice we're playing doing three or maybe four songs somewhere oh man that's one of the great lost artifacts that needs to be found and reissued <laughs> at some point <laughs> well, yeah well it didn't really last unfortunately that the the, uh, the the guy whose band it was because it was very much his band uh you know, which is one of the reasons why I didn't really stick around forever uh, to get away from that because he was somewhat of a control freak. I guess you've got to be if it's your band. But sadly, he didn't really make it very long. I think he, you know, he he, he passed away before he hit 30. It was kind of a matter of, uh, I think, uh, or, or, you know, uh, uh, unrealized potential, I think. Absolutely. So, yeah. But uh, no, it was great. It was, it was a great time. Well, um, I, as I say, Johnny, I could talk to you forever about this kind of stuff. And I haven't even gotten a chance to talk to you about the, the, or the not sensibles or any of that stuff, but would you, <laughs> would you come back at some point in the, in the future for a part two? No, absolutely. I love this stuff. It's great. You know, I, I, you know, talking about music and records and bands, I'd be happy to do it. Thanks for inviting me. Anytime. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Johnny, for coming on the show. And that was amazing to finally get to do that. Johnny, we'll be back. You heard it yourself for a part two at some point in the near future. And I cannot wait. There's a lot more to get to, which I'm sure will be the talk of Turned Out of Punk footnotes, which you will hear on that Turned Out of Punk Patreon, patreon.com slash Turned Out of Punk. There's also going to be, though, the Turned Out of Punk Super show, turned out a punk footnote, sorry, super shows that are going to continue to come out. So you will get your Chris O'Toole dose. And once again, turn out a punk, the show is not going to be changing at all. The Patreon will not change that. And I appreciate and love you for supporting the show, all of you, for as long as you have. And I really thank you for doing that. And this is just a new way for people that want some extra content to get that extra content. But don't feel don't feel obligated. I, I promise you this show is still going to be this show. And there's not going to be parts of the show hidden behind the paywall or any, any of that stuff because it gets a little – it drives me nuts sometimes when that happens. But – But that being said, support that goddamn Patreon. And thank you to all of you who already have. I really, really am blown away and appreciative of the support for that thing uh, off the bat because I didn't really do a lot to tell people that it was out there. I just kind of like put it out in the feed and, you know, had a soft opening, a soft launch for that Patreon. But all the people that sign up early, they're going to get a little something bonus tucked into uh the mailings that are going to get sent out. And I'm going to do mailings. I'm going to do mailings. There's, there's talks of fanzines. There's all sorts of stuff. Check out that Patreon page. Speaking of checking things out, next week on the show, 
there's a huge, huge guest that is well worth your time to check out. There is a brand new play that is playing in Toronto right now about the Ramones recording their end of the century album, the infamous end of the century album. And it's called Four Chords and a Gun. And it is written by my new friend, John Ross Bowie. And if you are not familiar with John Ross Bowie, you probably are because he has been in just about everything you can imagine known to a ton of people for his reoccurring role in the TV series Big Bang Theory. But for me, he's known for just countless other things. We talk about some of them next week on the show. But I had no idea what to expect going into this interview. You know, you meet people, they say they're into punk, you hear people are into punk, a publicist tells you someone's into punk, you sit down and start doing the interview, and you're like, ah, it's not really that into punk. Well, that is not the case with John. John is... Man, this is a fun episode. You will have a great time listening to this. Once again, it ties those worlds of punk and comedy together. Talks about straight edge punk. Oh, this is a fantastic episode. This is coming next week. If you are in Toronto or in Chicago, because the play is going to go to Chicago next, please check out Four Chords and a Gun. And tune in next week to hear John talk about all sorts of fun stuff. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Please support that Patreon once again. Uh, check out Turned Out of Punk Footnotes. Super shows that will be dropping in the feed. Check out the Oil and Flowers feed. Oil and Flowers has its own feed now, and it's got its own thing. And also, I guess this is like the Easter egg at the end of the episode telling you about this, but next Monday, like a week after you're hearing this, we will have some huge, huge news about the wrestlers. And my gosh, if you've been listening to this podcast for a long time, this has been the epic saga that will not die for me. And it will finally, uh, uh, you know, I don't know, I don't want to jinx it by saying it's going to finally get a conclusion, but it will finally have a new chapter uh, that we'll be talking about next week on the show. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Have a great day. Go out there and make your own culture. Sign your organ donor card. Support the Patreon. Fuck society. And uh, yeah, yeah, that's it. Um, I'm going to go back on vacation. Bye.